Hello and welcome to the Disclosure Podcast. I am your host, Ed. Thank you so much for tuning in today and I hope that you find this episode insightful. If you are new to the podcast, I have a catalogue of previous episodes and interviews discussing a broad range of different related topics surrounding veganism, morality, ethics, communication and the environment, as well as discussing current events. If you want more episodes of the podcast or if you just like to become a supporter of the work that I do, then you can sign up to my Patreon to get an exclusive patron only Q&A episode every single month where I go through your questions. And finally, if you enjoy listening to the podcast, then it would mean the world to me if you could leave a review on iTunes. Thank you so much again for tuning in. Hello everyone and welcome to the next episode of the Disclosure Podcast. I am your host Ed. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I really hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I decided that, well, Veganuary's obviously been over for just over two weeks now. We're in the middle of February. But I thought it'd be a good idea to maybe go through some of the more interesting articles, let's say, that came out during Veganuary. Because obviously Veganuary, as it always is, was another huge success. There were record signups. There were more and more products being released, more awareness raised, more conversation, more positive conversation. So it was a really successful Veganuary. And that's considering we're in the middle of a pandemic where people are probably less inclined to do things that are are radical in their lives, things that involve change. So I think actually to say that we're in the middle of a pandemic and Veganuary was the most successful one yet just really reiterates what a powerful movement and message it is and how accessible and how, I guess, I guess just how there is now that attitude in society that Veganuary has become a real cultural zeitgeist. It's discussed globally every single year when it happens. There's just such a huge proliferation of information. And it's like this snowball effect, isn't it? Where every year the snowball gets bigger because obviously there's more and more attention around it. So it has been really wonderful to see that. And I think even though all of the external factors that have been affecting us for the past year or so we're still at a point where Veganery was the most successful to date, which I think is obviously a wonderful thing. But of course, I'm not necessarily <laughs> I'm not necessarily representative of everyone's opinions of Veganery because there are, of course, some people that don't look so favorably upon it and see it directly as a threat. Of course, I'm referring mainly to the animal farming industries. I've got three articles here today that I kind of thought we'd go through together because they kind of talk about different issues and different aspects of the, I don't want to say anti-vegan, but the opposing view towards veganism. Obviously, some of these farmers are not necessarily quote-unquote anti-vegan per se, but of course, they're not in favor of veganism. So they're trying to, I suppose, create these other conversations around eating meat to try, I think, and capitalize on veganuary. And I'll come on to that a little bit more in a moment. But the first article I wanted to start with is from Farmers Weekly. So, of course, you can imagine straight away that it's not favorable towards veganism, but I think it's just a very interesting article. And I think it highlights something that is quite important to discuss. And, well, let me get into it. So, the headline is Harper Adams Students Union Blasted for Veganuary Post. So, Harper Adams is a university here in the UK. And so, the University Student Union had basically shared a post in favor of veganuary. It's caused quite a stir, as you can imagine, from an agricultural university. So let me get into the article and we'll go through it together. Harper Adams Students Union has apologised and deleted a social media post supporting Veganuary after it was heavily criticised by students and alumni. 
A barrage of complaints from angry students via the university's website, social media pages, and telephone line forced the students' union into a U-turn and admit that we've got this one wrong. One student who asked to remain anonymous said agricultural students at the university felt betrayed. He told Farmers Weekly, I think the significance of this is that not only is veganism causing serious mental health issues in the farming community, but it's destroying farmers' livelihoods. For an agricultural university to support this is really quite shocking. Isn't that interesting? When we eat food, we're eating food, right? So by that very simple realization, that therefore means that we require farmers and food producers. There is this idea that vegans oppose farmers and oppose agriculture. That is obviously not true. Vegans, like anyone in this world, are just as reliant on farmers as anyone else in this world. It's not that vegans are opposing farmers and trying to destroy farmers' livelihoods. We're just trying to change the agricultural system as it exists currently to get rid of the more unethical elements of it, the needless exploitation and death of sentient beings. What I think is very interesting about how a lot of animal farmers talk about vegans is they create this idea that it's vegans versus farmers, and that's not true. It's vegans versus systems of animal exploitation, and animal farming is, of course, the most predominant system of animal exploitation. And so we're not wanting to destroy the livelihoods of farmers. We want animal farmers to diversify and change their livelihoods, to get into different forms of agriculture, forms that are more sustainable and ultimately forms that are more ethical. I find it very interesting how there is this idea that is constantly regurgitated, and I think it's I think it's an idea that's trying to suggest that vegans are out of touch. We hear it all the time, don't we? Oh, vegans, what are you going to do when there's no farmers? It's like, well, that's not what we're asking. It's very simple what we're asking. It's respect their autonomy, respect the animals whose bodies are commodified, whose bodies are mutilated, and whose lives are taken from them needlessly and by force. That's what it's about. And I think What we see a lot from the farming community is this constant defensiveness, this constant victim mentality. It's it's not necessarily that they ever try and defend what they do, not ethically. It's very hard for them to do that, of course. We talk about high welfare standards and such, but when you get to the nuts and bolts of what farmers do, there is very little conversation from animal farmers about the ethical aspects of veganism. Of course, there's more about the sustainability side, but when it comes to the ethics, they say we have the highest welfare standards in the world here in the UK. But beyond that, there's very little conversation. It never really gets below that surface level argument. And so I think what we have here is something that's very interesting. It's again, that defensiveness, that victim mentality. This part of it is super interesting. I think the significance of this is that not only is veganism causing serious mental health issues in the farming community, is that an argument against veganism to say, well, animal farmers don't like the fact that veganism's a thing? I don't really know how that makes sense. It's like saying, well, we all have to drink oat milk because if we stop drinking oat milk, the oat farmers, their mental health could suffer. We could use that in any kind of argument that we wanted about any company or any industry. Oh, we all have to buy such and such because if we don't, the workers involved in such and such, well, their mental health could be compromised. That doesn't make sense to me. I don't know how we can kind of exist with that mindset. Now, What we do know, of course, is that mental health issues are a issue in society and, of course, in the farming sector as well. There are a few reasons for that. I think isolation. Farmers live often very solitary lives. They exist in very tight-knit communities. And I think because they exist kind of out in rural areas, they can often feel 
that the world changes around them because it often has in the past of course you think about agriculture and farmers the world has often changed around them in the past whether it was the creation of automobiles which made oat farmers back in the early 20th century go out of business because their industry was revolving around producing feed for horses for horse-drawn carriages what happened then of course is they had to diversify and change now of course we wouldn't say for a second that we shouldn't have had automobiles because of farmers mental health of course, we should take into account that farmers would suffer as a consequence of that. But what happened? They diversified. Now, unfortunately, back in the early 20th century, they diversified into animal product production, to dairy farming, and of course, into poultry farming, particularly back in the early 20th century. But what we are asking now as vegans is for a similar thing to happen. Of course, automobiles and transportation, as we came to know it in the early 20th century, was an incredibly important part of human development. I mean, when we look at climate change, it wasn't always positive, of course, but ultimately it was a very important part of human development. And we wouldn't say that we should have horse-drawn carriages, obviously for vegan reasons, but outside of that, we wouldn't want to have horse-drawn carriages just to protect the farmers who are producing the oats for the horses. Now, likewise, it's important for a human society to constantly evolve and change and progress. And so let's have a system of transformation now where, just as it was in the early 20th century, animal farmers should diversify and change the industry that they're involved in. And fundamentally, a way of doing that would be to work cooperatively. And I think that there's this issue, isn't there, obviously, where farmers can feel isolated, their mental health can deteriorate as a consequence, and they can feel like they don't have much control over what's happening because ultimately they don't. I mean, what consumers decide to do and how consumers decide to live is something that you can't control, really. Of course, as farmers, they can't. And so it, they can feel helpless. But ultimately, saying that it's veganism's fault is a very disingenuous thing to do. It's not veganism's fault. It's the archaic traditions and mentalities of the farming world. It's the fact that animal farmers are so, I suppose, deep-rooted in these generational forms of employment. Their parents did it, their grandparents did it, maybe their great-great-grandparents did it. And so there's so much history and so much heritage to what they do that it feels like they don't have a choice. Maybe there's some guilt around getting out of that industry. Maybe there's shame because all their friends are in the industry. So why would they question it? And so that kind of community closeness and the ancestral heritage of what they do creates this very stubborn mindset where, oh, my mental health's deteriorating. It's because of vegans. It's because of veganism. Well, actually, no, it's because people's attitudes are changing. And if society and those within society who don't react well to that change suffer as a consequence, then there has to be some sort of level of objective communication and objective critical reflection that says, well, maybe we have to change with the changing times, especially considering the changes that we're talking about are instrumental to creating a better world, more compassionate world, a more sustainable world. A recent report from two weeks ago or so from Chatham House, a very well-renowned think tank that's backed by the United Nations, again reiterated what we already know that if we want to meet our climate goals and we want to avoid the worst effects of climate change, then we need to radically alter our agricultural system. We need to dismantle animal farming, switch to plant-based agriculture, and then reforest and restore those ecosystems which have been deforested up until this point to make way for animal farming. This isn't a vegan organization. This isn't vegans saying this. These are scientists. These are leading experts in the field of climate science and of course, environmental science saying what we've been told so often for the past several years, especially 
we need to make these changes. And what we can't allow ourselves to do is get caught in this victim mentality. We have to change accordingly. And so I just think it's very interesting that this idea is, oh, this organization, Students' Union, shared a post about Veganuary. Sharing a post about Veganuary isn't anti-agriculture because Veganuary is just as reliant on agriculture as any other food movement, right? We all need farmers to grow food for us. This isn't against farmers. It's against a system that is oppressive to sentient beings. And I just feel like that's something that's missed. And I don't think farmers often, well, you wonder, don't you? Obviously, when you get put on the back foot and you feel like you're being personally attacked, the default for many people is to try and garner some sympathy, to try and portray themselves as the meek victim who, with no control of their own, is being pigeonholed as being a certain thing and being disregarded because of what they do. But that's not a genuine way to tackle difficult situations and conversations. And we need to be logically honest at this time because there's so much at stake with it. Anyway, move on a little bit. The student added that the post was perceived to be an attack on British farming by so many. That's what's interesting. It's not attacking British farming. I want to eat British produce just as much as any vegan or non-vegan does. I want to eat British fruits and vegetables and crops. I want to support British farmers. I want to support the British agricultural landscape just as much as anyone who eats meat, dairy and eggs do. But when it comes to conversations of animal farmers, vegans often get told, well, what about dairy farmers? And my response is, well, what about oat farmers? Why is a dairy farmer worth more than an oat farmer who produces the oat milk that I drink? Why is a cow farmer, someone who farms cows for their flesh, more important than the person who grows the vegetables that I consume, the soy products that I consume in the form of tofu, the soy products coming from sustainable forms of agriculture across Europe? Why are they more important and why is their job worth more than those who provide the food that I consume? Because that doesn't make sense. There shouldn't be this discrepancy. Oh, animal farmers are put up on a pedestal where their job has a higher value and needs more protection than those who produce food for vegans. If I was an arable farmer, a crop producer in the UK, I would feel so disgruntled by the idea that my system of farming is constantly disregarded, that what I do to produce the food that vegans consume is never taken into consideration. It's always, oh, vegans are attacking British agriculture. No, we're supporting different forms of British agriculture. But I see that a lot during Veganuary, of course. Unfortunately, the student union issued an apology, but it's not necessarily surprising. This is an agricultural university. They probably didn't feel like they had much choice from a PR perspective. They said the post was intended to support people who follow a meat-free diet and celebrate freedom of choice. Well, that's exactly right, isn't it? Because putting a post up to celebrate that people are doing something, people are, are kind of trying something else in their life, people are adopting a different way of living, to have that censored doesn't seem right to me. Obviously, universities share posts about meat eating. I'm sure this agricultural university do all the time. We shouldn't just take down these posts because we disagree with them. There's a post we're going to come on to later from every January post, and I'll touch on that in a bit. But at the same time, if a university shared that, imagine if the vegans were complaining and the university felt that like they had to take that down. It would be vegans are attacking freedom of speech. Vegans are censoring non-vegans. Vegans are preaching extremists and forcing their views again. And yet what we have is a situation where someone shares or a union shares a post about Veganuary, the non-vegans complain, so they take it down. But is that not forceful of views? Is that not preachy? Is that not an attack on freedom of speech and the freedom of celebration of the fact that people are making alternate choices, ones that align with their morals and their values? Interesting, right? The next article I want to move on to is one from Sky News. 
the headline, which is it's a cracker. It says, Veganuary is just a gimmick and casting British industry to the wall, farmers warn. Farmers are fighting back against calls for people to tackle climate change by going vegan in January. Veganuary is a not-for-profit organization started in 2014. Since then, they've had more than a million people sign up. Well, there was 600,000 this year alone. So that shows the progression that we've seen in Veganuary. If since 2014, there was a million in total, well, this year there's been 600,000. So we can expect these numbers really ramp up in the years to come. But farmers say there's no need to cut out meat completely, insisting what's key is the sustainability of the produce and where it comes from. Joe Stanley is a beef and arable farmer in Leicestershire. He says people can play their part in reducing greenhouse gases by eating more sustainably produced local meat and reducing the carbon footprint in other ways. I love that. I love that. It's like, you can reduce your carbon footprint in other ways. Imagine if BP or ExxonMobil or all these big polluters were like, well, I mean, sure, of course, you could reduce your carbon footprint by, uh, you know, choosing more alternative forms of transport and prioritizing trains over cars and planes. But you could also reduce your carbon footprint in other ways. (laughs) Like, that doesn't seem to me to be a very convincing argument. Well, there are other ways you can do it, you know. Oh, yeah, that's true. So I guess I'll just eat as much red meat and and steak as I like and fly round trips to Australia five times a year, because I suppose I could reduce my carbon in in different ways if I wanted to. It, It just seems so silly to me. The local meat thing, well, hold on to that thought, of course. He said, this farmer, veganuary, from my perspective, is just a gimmick which is distracting society from the bigger questions we need to be addressing around the sustainability of our diets. Not just the meat in our diet, but the sustainability of all the food we're consuming and how it's being produced across the world. There is a danger of casting a very sustainable British industry to the wall in the pursuit of a well-meaning campaign such as veganery, and then we may find that we're importing food from other parts of the world which have much worse environmental records and much higher carbon footprints. Any citations for that? What's always bewildering, and I see this a lot, is... In these articles, it's always like such and such a beef farmer, such and such a sheep farmer said this. And then it'll be like, scientists from the United Nations say that we need to reduce meat consumption. But this beef farmer from Leicestershire says, no, 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 no. <laughs> you know, it's like, why? I don't understand again why we place those within the industry on the same level as the scientists in this conversation. We wouldn't do that in any other situation, would we? We wouldn't go, Coca-Cola. That's terrible for you, isn't it? Really bad. All this science and all this objective reality about how bad Coca-Cola is. But on the other hand, you know, here's the CEO of Coca-Cola and he says it's not that bad, actually. So who should I trust? We don't do it with other things. Oh, you know, all this fracking is pretty bad for the environment. But here's someone who makes money from fracking who says fracking's not that bad. Okay. I don't understand why we put them on the same pedestal. And this regurgitation of misinformation without accountability is very concerning to me. Farmers, again, it's a situation of the pot calling the kettle black. Do you know that expression? You know, it's basically you're doing the very thing you're accusing someone else of doing. Farmers are always at vegans are spreading misinformation. But on the other hand, here we have farmers spreading misinformation. The issue with animal farming is not the origin. If I buy beef from France or beef from just outside London. The environmental impact of that is almost identical because when you look at the science, the majority of the impact, the vast majority of the impact from an environmental perspective related to animal farming is the farming itself. In fact, a study, the biggest study, the most comprehensive analysis has ever been conducted, exploring the relationship between farming and the environment, said that when you look at sheep flesh and cow flesh, 
About 98% of the emissions come from the farming itself, not from the transportation. So we have to get our mindset out of local meaning better. Of course, if you can buy local produce, that is normally better when it comes to buying the same item. So buying local kale compared to overseas kale is of course better, but you can't compare local and overseas when you're talking about entirely different products. These products are vastly different. So if I'm buying organic, sustainably produced soy from France, which happens when I buy brands like Typhoon, who do organic soy products like tofus and such, that is a hundred percent better. That is of course substantially better than buying some cow flesh from down the road because the farming is the issue. A study done in the EU looked at total emissions from the agricultural sector. Only 10% of the emissions from farming in the European Union come from transportation. The overwhelming problem is the farming itself. Don't fall into the trap of thinking because it's local, that therefore means it's more sustainable. It might be more sustainable when you're comparing that product to the exact same product from a different country when you're comparing different food items that equation doesn't add up. So that's something to definitely be aware of. But the idea that veganery is a gimmick, I don't know. It's been seven years now and every year it grows larger and larger and more and more people join and it has bigger impact every single year. It's not a gimmick. And I think if farmers think that people abstaining from eating animal products because of the environment and because of the ethics is a gimmick, that's really terrifying to me. They think it's a gimmick to say, I don't think an animal should die for me if they don't have to. Oh, this pig who's going to be killed in a gas chamber, I don't want to have any part of that. Is that really a gimmick? Is it a gimmick to say, wow, the scientific consensus is that we need to shift our agricultural model, that the way that we farm currently is unsustainable and cannot go on. Is it a gimmick to therefore say, I'm going to eat a plant-based diet for the environment? Is it a gimmick to follow the science and to follow your values and morals about not causing needless suffering to animals? I don't know how you could call that a gimmick. That to me just says an awful lot about the animal farming industries that they would refer to that as a gimmick. It's so much more. This is so important. This is a matter of life and death for the animals and indeed for many humans who are impacted by climate change and who of course will continue to be impacted by climate change into the future. And what about disease? What about chronic disease and infectious zoonotic disease? 2.3 million people so far have been killed by COVID-19. Strongly believed to have started in a wet market in Wuhan with the trading of animals for food. What about swine flu? What about bird flu? What about BSE? What about Nipah? What about Ebola? What about these infectious zoonotic diseases that have killed hundreds of thousands, millions of people, and the origins of them coming from what we do to animals, industrial agriculture being the biggest driver in the emergence of new infectious zoonotic diseases? Is that a gimmick? Is that a gimmick to say in the future, I don't want to have to face another lockdown and another pandemic where people are dying needlessly? Is that a gimmick? If we really believe that's a gimmick, what does that say about our mentality? This to me just shows that This bee farmer has a real disconnection from the core fundamental elements of why people are making these changes. It's not about diets. It's bigger than that. It's about animals, the planet, our species, about the kind of world we want to create for our children and grandchildren. I don't understand that mentality. It seems worrying to me. The last article I wanted to talk about relates to the ethical butcher. Now, I was sent this article... It's from a a site called Maddiness, and the journalist goes by the name of Florence Wildblood. She's vegan, but she's tried to write an article about 
ethical meets, a quote-unquote ethical meet, of course. Because back in early January, there was a post that was shared around Instagram and Facebook that was saying that we shouldn't do Veganuary, we should do Regenuary. Now, the idea of Regenuary is about promoting regenerative agriculture. Now, regenerating soils and creating more sustainable forms of agriculture is a great selling point because that's something that everyone agrees we need to do. The problem is that message is being hijacked by people whose industries are trying to rebrand themselves in a way that meets the changing attitudes of consumer society. So veganery shows that people want to be more ethical and want to be more sustainable. So if you're a animal flesh producer and an animal flesh seller, that poses an interesting question to you, which is, well, how do you diversify with those changing ideas? And so this company called The Ethical Butcher have taken this stance of, well, calling it regenerative agriculture. It's fallen in the footsteps of documentaries like Kiss the Ground and people like Alan Savory, who promote this idea of holistic management. Now, what's interesting, of course, is that this post that was promoting, quote unquote, regenuary, it made claims like eating avocados and nuts is worse for the environment than eating well-raised animals. I don't know what well-raised, well-raised to who? The animal? (laughs) No. The farmer? Sure. But how does that make an impact on the sustainability of the product? It just doesn't. And the idea that local meat, again, we've been through this, so I'm not going to really stick on this topic for much longer, but the idea that avocados and nuts are worst is just anti-scientific. There's not a single peer-reviewed meta-analysis that reflects that opinion. Where are the life cycle analyses that show that? They don't exist. Where are the life cycle analyses that show the contrary? Oh yeah, they're pretty easy to find actually. Where are the peer-reviewed meta-analyses that show that grazing animals is not beneficial for the environment in the ways that these people claim that, that it is? Well, you can find those fairly easy. Most <laughs> most of these peer-reviewed meta-analyses are pointing to that exact problem. And if they're not, they're not defending animal product consumption. You have two types of scientific literature when it comes to this issue. Those that say we need to go vegan and those that's, that say, well, we definitely need to reduce. What we have is a situation where people who are profiting off the exploitation of animals and whose business is selling meat are talking about issues that are not backed up by the scientific literature. Why then? Are we placing what is an unsubstantiated opinion on the same pedestal as peer-reviewed meta-analyses? That doesn't make sense. It's not logical. The idea of the ethical butcher is that they're producing animal products in these farming methods that are better for the environment. Okay, well, there's a peer-reviewed meta-analysis called Grazed and Confused that looked at 300 different sources and said that the claims made by regenerative animal agriculture proponents are not true. Or what companies like the ethical butcher seek to claim is that grazing animals can be carbon neutral, which means that, well, the amount of emissions being produced by the agriculture, the methane, of course, primarily in you know, livestock grazing, is offset by the amount of carbon that's been sequestered into the soil through the grazing management systems. That's not backed up by the science. A peer-reviewed meta-analysis that looked exactly into this said two things that are really important. Firstly, you can only offset at best 20 to 60% of the total emissions, which means you still have a surplus. And secondly, soil reaches something called soil carbon equilibrium, which means that the amount of carbon being trapped in the soil is matched by the amount of carbon being released. You can't absorb or you can't trap any more carbon into the soil. It's, It's full, is a simple way of saying it. So at that point, you're not offsetting any of the emissions. But proponents of this system of farming seek to claim that it can be carbon neutral. They even go so far as to say it can be beneficial because they can actually sequester more CO2 than is produced in the equivalent of methane form by the animals themselves. And that is pseudoscientific at best. 
But this is what I wanted to point out in this article, which I thought was really interesting, is when we talk about the ethical butcher and we talk about ethical meat, what are we thinking of? What is that trying to encourage us to believe about their company? Fundamentally, that they're doing something differently. There's something about their processing, about their manufacturing, if those are the right words. Those are those euphemisms the animal farming industries use, of course. There's something indifferent in the way that they kill animals, basically, to make it ethical. Well, the journalist of this piece interviewed one of the co-founders who's called Glenn Burrows and asked him about this actual claim. I asked him about what it means to be an ethical butcher. Like, What does that actually involve? And particularly, she wanted to know about the the slaughter. She made a really great point, which is back in 2016, the Bureau of Investigative Journalism reported that British farm animals are subjected to needless pain and distress six times a day on average as they are slaughtered. And in 2018, it noted that 18 workers in British slaughterhouses lost fingers, parts of fingers or limbs, and over 100 suffered serious injuries, including damage to eyesight and crush injuries to their heads and torsos just in one year. It's crazy, isn't it, to think that we can call what happens in slaughterhouses humane. And we now have companies that are trying to claim that what they do is ethical. But, well, with the data that we have available, a very damning indictment of what happens in slaughterhouses. And again, animal farmers will often proclaim that what happens in the UK is the best in the world. We have the strongest welfare standards. Nobody does it better than us. And it just so happens that British farm animals are subjected to needless pain and distress six times a day on average as they are slaughtered. What does that involve? Well, we know what that involves. And ultimately they're killed. They're slaughtered. What's ethical about that? You take a sentient being who has their own subjective experiences, who's an individual who feels, who suffers, and you take them into a building that we call a slaughterhouse. The main job of a slaughterhouse is to take the lives of sentient beings. And then you want to attach words like ethical and humane to a process that involves taking life, gas chambers, bloody knives pulled across the throats of these animals. Ethical. What does being ethical mean? If if you're an ethical person, what does that look like? If someone, let's say, is ethical, do they cut the throats of dogs? No. If someone is an ethical person, do they put cats in gas chambers? No. So why then can an ethical person pay for animals to be put in, or pigs to be put in gas chambers? Why can an ethical person pay for pigs and cows and chickens and lambs to have their throats cut, sell the meat as part of their business, profit off that death, and then refer to themselves as ethical? That's not right. Imagine if you could rationalize, imagine if you could explain to an animal, let's say we could have an open and honest conversation with an animal and they could speak our languages. And they said, well, why are you doing this to me? And Glenn Burroughs and, and people that are involved in this industry who profit off it will say, well, look, you know, I just, you know, I think it's ethical. And the pig goes, well, you think it's ethical to kill me without, without need? You're going to put me in a gas chamber and kill me so you can profit off my flesh? And then you're going to say that's ethical? How is that ethical? I mean, what would we say? <laughs> How could you justify that? I mean, that's kind of the problem, isn't it? Because we can't have these conversations. We never will, of course. It's very easy for us just to kind of ignore them, the animals, because they're not going to walk up to us and demand that we justify our actions. Of course, they can't. And even though they visually express and verbally express their discomfort and pain in the forms of cowering and, of course, screaming, we don't listen. And so because they don't look like us, 
talk like us. We can just turn a blind eye to their suffering and then have the audacity to call their suffering ethical. Anyway, Florence Wildblood asked Glenn Burroughs, the co-founder of The Ethical Butcher, about the slaughtering process. Glenn said, It's the one part of the business that I freely admit we do not have much control over or enough control over. At the moment, we are sourcing from farms which are all over the country, and all of the farmers who we're using operate at incredibly high standards of welfare. We've taken the position at this stage to say to the farmers, we trust you to do what's best for the end of the life of these animals, and we will work with whichever abattoirs you've decided offer the highest levels of welfare. Are these the abattoirs and slaughterhouses that kill the animals in the exact same way as every other slaughterhouse and abattoir? Yes. There's not different techniques in these different places. It's all the same. It's all people that are primarily from impoverished communities, desperate for work, who get involved in very dangerous jobs for their own safety, who are killing these animals needlessly. I mean, there's nothing ethical about that process. I just think it's outrageous that they can call themselves an ethical butcher and try to proclaim they have these values that are about caring for animals and doing the best for animals. And then say, actually, well, we don't really know anything about the slaughter. We just kind of trust the farmers. How is that good enough? Glenn goes on to say, this varies dramatically from small abattoirs to larger scale abattoirs, but this is something that's interesting. He says, in the future, what I would like, which has only just become legally available, is to have a mobile unit that visits the farms and does the kills in fields. Some of the farmers who've trialed this have said this is absolutely the most humane way. I just think about that for a second. Mobile slaughter units, vehicles that travel around the country killing animals, it just doesn't sound good, does it? Imagine if we could rationalize like a utopia. What's the most perfect world? What is the best world possible? This idealistic, perfect utopia. What does that look like? You know, I'm trying to th- I'm thinking of uh, everyone's happy. You know, there's no war. There's no famine. There's no starvation. We've got rid of all the discrimination to humans. Everyone's living a very egalitarian life. And then as we go about our days, there's just these vehicles on the road that have knives in them and captive bolts and restraints and electrical stunning devices. And as we're all celebrating living in this truly egalitarian society, these units, these vehicles are driving around the country, going up to animals and killing them. That to me doesn't sound like the kind of world that we would want to live in. That's not an egalitarian world, is it? That's an oppressive world. It's an oppressive world towards non-human animals. And so this idea that, oh, will it be more humane to do this? But is it objectively humane? Is it objectively moral? Is it objectively okay? Of course it's not. Imagine animals just in a field, minding their own business, and then someone comes up to them and just and kills them, restrains them, stuns them, whatever, kills them. That's not okay. A sentient being whose life is taken. What I really want to emphasize is that as we progress forwards, we're going to hear about more of these outlandish kind of ideas, aren't we? And we're going to see these different words attached to animal farming and the animal products that we consume. We're very used to hearing about high welfare and grass-fed and organic and all these different labels and farming terminologies that are applied to the products that we consume. But as those labels become less and less credible in the eyes of the consumer, as labels like Red Tractor, RSPCA, as those labels lose credibility and consumers start to see through them and realize how absurd and how corrupt they are. I mean, for instance, the Red Tractor in the UK is operated by farmers. The biggest welfare scheme in the UK that we're supposed to see as being a beacon of looking after animals is run by animal farmers. Where's the accountability? Where's the oversight? It doesn't exist. Of course it doesn't. 
You know, in the US, the USDA works with the animal farming industries. They have the dairy checkoff, the American Egg Board. The USDA sits in on these meetings. How can we expect there to be adequate oversight and accountability when the industry and the government work together? People begin to see through this, of course. But what we have is a situation where the animal farming communities react in accordance to those changing attitudes and the lack of oversight and the subsequent diminishing of trust that consumers have in these industries and indeed these labels. And so what we'll see is companies trying to capitalize off of the changing attitudes of society, and they'll try and sell us ideas that play into what we want. I see it a lot with animal farmers now, not just with the ethical butcher, of course, but bigger companies. Now, what's really interesting about the ethical butcher's regenuary post is that it was shared by an organization that I believe is called Dunbia. And they're one of Europe's largest producers of cow flesh. Now, in what world do we presume that this huge corporation that is working with probably thousands of different farmers is now all of a sudden part of this sustainable form of agricultural production, this ethical form of agricultural management. That's obviously not what's happened here. It's an idea that consumers want to buy into. And so the animal farming industries are capitalizing off that. But nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. These terms don't mean that the farming system has altered and is better. It's just a label that's been used in the same way as grass-fed and organic or free-range or high-welfare or RSPCA-approved or Red Tractor-approved. They're just labels. They don't actually mean anything, not anything tangible, not anything meaningful. And so again, this whole regenerative animal agriculture, it seeks to claim that there's something radically different happening in the animal farming world, but it's not true. And then we'll see these big companies and these big corporations start talking about regenerative agriculture. I think in Canada, was it A&W, the fast food chain, had an advert talking about it? Really? So what happened? Three years ago, you weren't, but now all of a sudden all your farmers have changed this wonderful model of farming. No, it's a buzzword that these industries are capitalizing off. And that's exactly what's happening with these quote unquote ethical butchers. It's an idea that doesn't really mean anything meaningful. It doesn't have any tangible benefit, not to the planet, not to the, the animals, nothing substantial enough to warrant its existence. And yet it becomes an idea that's very powerful because it plays into what consumers want. And it tells us that we can eat the foods that we've continued to eat for our whole lives, foods that we don't necessarily want to give up. And we can do so without feeling guilty because actually you don't have to be plant-based to have the environmental benefits of changing your diet. You don't have to be plant-based to get rid of the harm that's caused to animals by animal farming. You can just eat regenerative meat. It's a very dangerous idea, but it's interesting, isn't it? Those are the three articles I wanted to discuss. Uh, I appreciate you for listening and I hope you find it interesting because I find it very interesting to see what the animal farmers are talking about, to see how the industry is changing and adapting. And veganery is a wonderful opportunity to talk about veganism, but to also understand what's happening in those animal farming communities a little bit more. What's the conversation? What is the focus moving forward for animal farmers? What are the words they're going to use? What are the terms they're appealing to? And what do they actually mean? Because obviously these aren't words that are going to go away. But what I really liked about the end of this Florence Wildblood article is she says that, you know, veganuary is often referred to as a fad, but actually regenuary is the fad. Veganuary is here to stay, but this idea of regenerative meat will be like diesel cars, for example. Something that we're told is wonderful, but actually in the long run is not just as bad but potentially even worse. And that's the reality of these extensive outdoor pasture-based animal farming methods is 
sure, you can find the reasons why that's better, of course, ethically, sure, in the farming perspective. The slaughter is the same, but when it comes to sustainability, you have a pros and cons list. And actually the cons of that potentially are even more significant from a sustainability perspective than the cons of factory farming. So it's an interesting thing for us to discuss, interesting thing for us to be aware of, but I really hope you enjoyed listening to it. I'll end the podcast here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And I hope that you guys all enjoyed Veganuary. I know I'm a couple of weeks late talking about it on the podcast, but I hope you all enjoyed Veganuary. hope that you managed to take advantage of some of the new products if you live in an area, of course, that has all these new products. And I hope that you saw a positive, tangible benefit of people changing and you can sense that. Because of course, what I think is really important for us is to realize that the momentum is very much shifting. Did you see that there was this article or a statement from Unilever. Obviously Unilever, a huge corporation and not necessarily a good one, of course, but at the same time, what was very interesting is they said that they're seeing this growing demand for plant-based products everywhere in all different markets. It's not isolated to the UK where I am or LA or some of the more stereotypical cities, let's say. It's happening everywhere. This is a global change that one of the biggest producers of different food products in the world has noted is substantial to the point where they're ramping up their production of plant-based products and they think that these trends are not going to stop. So that's really powerful information and just shows how things are starting to change and alter. And as a consequence, of course, the animal farming industry's rhetoric will have to change and alter at the same time. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this podcast and I very much look forward to speaking to you all in the next podcast. But until then, do stay safe, do take care of yourselves, do look after each other. I hope you're all doing okay during this tricky time. But yeah, like I said, I look forward to speaking to you all very, very soon.